Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Education. Today, I'm speaking with political scientist Claire Nader about her new book, You Are Your Own Best Teacher. Claire has worked as a social scientist and activist in a variety of areas, mostly at the intersection of science and society. You Are Your Own Best Teacher is a book written for tweens between ages 9 and 12, encouraging young people to think critically about the world around them. The book can be purchased directly from the publishers at inspiringtweens.com. Claire, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. You're welcome. You're welcome. So the first question I'd like to ask is if you can just tell me a little bit about yourself and how it is that you chose to write this book. Well, um, we were raised uh, to converse. And so I seemed to converse with youngsters in the grocery lines. You have their home hanging on to their parents' uh, hand and looking around and fidgeting a little bit. So I look and they look at me and look away. And then we lock eyes and and I they realize that I see them. And it's amazing what happens. They open up like a tulip. And so I talk to them. I ask them questions. And what's interesting is the parents always want to jump in and answer the question. And I say to the parents, no, I'm asking your child. And then they learn something. And the child is very interesting to hear. I ask questions about their school. I ask questions of what they like best in school. I ask questions about do they have grandparents and how much time they spend with them and and uh, matters like that. And then they're gone because the shopping is, they've gotten through the line. So it's been a very interesting experience. And I realized that, that um this almost comes naturally to me because my mother was like that. She gathered children like a magnet. And so I watched her. And what she would do is invite them over to bake bread with her, like we baked bread with her, because that's when she talked to us about our worries, our schoolwork, our friends, and uh, without grilling us like, all right, sit down, I'm going to find out about you. It's all kind of a process. And so I've done it for years, and I was watching uh, children with these phones, and they're not spending as much time playing in the neighborhood. We went through a period, if you recall, that uh, people were worried that their kids would be kidnapped because some people had walked off with the kids, enticed them, and so on. And uh, so... We, uh, they were taught not to talk to strangers. So it was something to get them to talk, and we had a good time. What else can I tell you? 
that's how I came to this book, because it was nowhere in my plan to do it, and I was way retired already. And uh, what else can I tell you, Caleb? Well, yeah, I'm wondering, you know, what what is it specifically about, you know, young people ages, you know, starting at around age nine, you know, they're starting to learn about the world. Uh, and I think that you have a lot of different sections in the book that cover different things about the world or about growing up that young people might encounter. Um, and I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of interesting pieces of wisdom that you have for them. So I'm wondering, you know, what are some of the pieces of advice that you have for both, you know, young people who are just learning about the world and also for their parents? Well, um, you have to, even parents have to learn how to converse again, especially busy parents, especially two working parents. So it's all about getting the getting the kids breakfast, getting them off to school, it, it, it is, you have to stop and listen. And this tries to help them do that. Plus, uh, you can, um, this is the first time, by the way, that uh, the parental authority is being undermined by the screens, by everything around them. We used to, when, when mother took us to uh, buy shoes, for example, she took us to buy shoes. And the salesman would ask her, would look to her as to ask, you know, what she wants for us. And she would deal with the salesman. He would deal with her. All she wanted out of us is if the shoe was comfortable. We'd do a good good selection, and leave. Now, when my sister had children, we went, I remember we went to buy them some shoes, and the salesman looked to the child and asked them, what would you like? And she said to him, my sister, she said, wait a minute, I'm the customer here. And he almost didn't understand her. We'll find out what fits and what they like, but I decide. Oh, Trying to think what else might interest you. Well, you you, you mentioned up, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of this book comes out of my family background and comparing today and then, and it was simpler times. They said, but maybe not. It was complicated enough for those for that time. And we had an extended, we had aunts and uncles and cousins in Canada, and we we uh, vacationed with them uh, one year in Canada, one year in Connecticut. And um, so we saw other things, and we enjoyed additional things. We had gardens. We prepared dinner and went and got the string beans that my father had grown. And uh, or the rhubarb, or and that was a good experience. How that that little piece of land on our property, which wasn't very big, um, was wasn't good soil either, but it produced a lot. And I remember we went up 
picked the beans and they came and were made for supper. So we had those. Now, on on our little property, we had, interestingly enough, uh, an apple tree, each tree, uh, a Concord grape arbor. Can you imagine that? It's, Same with the house. Yeah, it's very far from my from my reality in the city. Yeah. Well, even in the city, they're beginning to do urban gardens now. They grow up on the on the roofs. You know that. Brooklyn yeah, there's has quite a few of that. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of rooftop gardens that are popping up, and I think what's you know what's exciting too is seeing the way in which they these gardens oftentimes are run by you know public libraries in the community or by local schools mm-hmm. uh, the area i'm in in particular there's there's lots of schools there's a, a pre-k right next to me and there's a garden mm-hmm. uh, that mm-hmm. the students get to get to spend time in mm-hmm. and uh, the schools are a problem you know i mean they, they are so into state mandates and uh, tests and and uh, and even t- good teachers can't stand it, but they have to go through the ropes. So um, I have a story in the book by uh, which was written up. It happened actually in 2004, but it was written up by Brian Schultz, who was the teacher, and now has written other books. Called one is called Teaching Between the Cracks. That's about con- teaching about reality controversies. Schools weren't didn't want to teach about controversies because they upset the order of things. And you might get into uh, saying something that the parents, some parents, might not like. I remember Coleman McCarthy, who's in the book, who um, uh, was a covered, um, he was a columnist for the Washington Post. And then uh, he was asked uh, by one of the schools in the area to come and teach. Uh, down. It was a school that wasn't well endowed, although public. And he went uh, to teach. Uh, they wanted creative writing. And he said, no, I want to teach peace. And he's been teaching peace since the middle 80s. And it's a very interesting way he does it. Uh, so I asked him to come and give a talk, a public talk at the community college in in Winstead, which my older brother Shaft founded. And there's a book on that that's quite interesting by an anthropologist who who came and wrote a book about, did a lot of things in town with us and wrote a book called Shaft Nader and the Impossible College. I mean, it was that was a civic action. He started it with a 501c3 because the state wasn't ready and their politics and all that. And then the minute it started and it was becoming a good thing and the state wanted it. He wasn't very happy that he had to give it over because they couldn't raise enough money to run a community college. Well, that was his story. And... Uh, um, we we want the family has been the reason I said this is a book for tweens and families. The family is very important. This book needs to be read part by part by families together with them, so the discussions can go on. And uh, 
there's a family in uh, in Virginia that has taken that on. They're 11 year old. They have an 11 year old and uh, twins actually. And the boy is very interested, it seems. But you have to you have to read with them, discuss, and they will change. They will you will find out they have assets that we better not um, that we better value because. They may need us right now, but we really need them. With the climate uh, passing as it is and and uh, being diminished and destroyed, uh, you need, as one of the, uh, Nick Ashford from MIT, one of the blurbers, he said, arguably the most important generation of our time. And that's what he was referring to. Do you think that, you know, young people's participation in these serious conversations, how do you think that they should engage? Do you think it's more important that they listen to the adults talk and then they speak or that they participate just as an adult might? As an adult, you don't talk down to them. And they have many good things to say. But the adult has to realize that. And some some of them do. I have somebody now, she typed the book, actually. She was the manuscript. And um, so she's doing it with her 10-year-old, I think, grandson. And the the younger one, the seven, she's about eight now. She's a, bright as a whip. She can get it in a minute. And um, we'll see how far she gets. Now, also, there's an anthropologist, Demeter Dukas, who wrote the book, uh, about how the community college got established called the Northwestern Connecticut um, Community College. And, um, and, uh, the, and it's, by the way, rated very high in the state and in the country. Isn't that interesting? And it sits right on the green. And this... Dark green. It was our former high school. Oh, wow. And it's it's really quite a story. Uh, Interlink Publishing um, published it, a small publisher in Northampton, Mass., and a good read. And so I thought, how nice. Uh, one brother established a community college in the east end of town on the green, and the other one, uh, Ralph, started the... Um, American Museum of Tort Law, which you, if you haven't seen, you really should drive out and see it. It's a, a trip with friends, and it is um, opened in 2015 in an old bank building, you know, renovated, and it's there educating the young about tort law. And I've, I had a section, tort law and contracts, and uh, they can understand that. You can put it in language they can understand. And as a matter of fact, uh, one of the blurbers, Robert Felmuth, who who uh, is a lawyer, public interest lawyer in San Diego, and, and heads is the director of the Children's Advocacy Center Institute, and uh, he said that uh, if his boys were still at home, he would read one topic a night. Nobody would. Uh, how does he put it? Nobody would fall asleep, but everybody would be wiser. 
and you can and they have would have discussions. He loved it. I think he said in his seventy six years he hasn't liked the book as much. Do you if you read the blurbs, uh uh Caleb, you would see they all had different different takes on it, but but they all were uh or um I put it. No, here's Nick Ashford. The book highlights the importance of self-education on how to achieve a life well-lived to arguably the most important generation of our time. The narrative style of the work has many sections, each of which provides important lessons. The book is exciting to read, and I will recommend it to my 10-year-old grandson to stimulate his own critical thinking and self-education through concentration, imagination, curiosity, and empathy. Very nice. And uh, Jane Hall, who teaches at a American University, it's a welcome, loving anti- antidote to the corporate and social media forces that, quote, sell young people as products. Yeah, I think that the way in which young, yeah, the, the way in which corporate media sells to young people is, is very worrying. And it's definitely important for there to be conversations about that. I mean, you know, I think a, a common theme is, you know, you highlight is just the importance of critical thinking. Uh, you know, what, how do you think of critical thinking and, and, you know, what does that sort of entail for you? Well, uh, I remember I.F. Stone. I don't know if you've heard of him. Is he, is he Stone? Yeah, Izzy Stone. And uh, he said, uh, um, somebody asked him, what do you think of investigative reporting? He said, is there any other kind? You don't need the adjective. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. But you know, some of some reporting is uh, not investigative so much as just no. re- re- repeating what uh, authorities yeah. say. Yeah, of course. But what was your question again? Just you know. Uh, you know, I think I think you you partially answered it with that that quip. I think it's it's true. Uh, just you know, the uh, thinking about because I think that you know the, you have an an interesting uh, anecdote or just a, a kind of in- interesting observation about how young people uh, when they ask questions, for example, if young people were to be questioning the president, they would ask much mm-hmm. more pointed and direct questions, and how politicians. Mm-hmm often fear the questions from young people more than mm-hmm. from adults. Uh, yeah. And I thought that was a very interesting observation. There's the youngster, you know, in the book asked uh, uh, Reagan about trees. And uh, um, he, how did, the, how, does the, how did he put it? Uh, he said, uh, why trees uh, pollute? And it was the question that God, David Brinkley said, I never would have asked a question like that. So they're, they're an asset, a real asset. Now, we, we, they need us, of course, to support and to encourage these, these assets that they have normally. And, uh, but we need them. We need them because they lead us places that we wouldn't go by ourselves. For example, remember the uh, uh, the dump, the, the school child noticed on the way to school one day, and she told her teacher, I think there's a dump on the way to school. Oh, no, says the teacher. 
remember that story? And uh, so they all went as a class. And in fact, she was right. She saw it was all grown over and thing, but things were sticking out and kind of leaky. And she found out that, yes, it was a dump. And when they went to the state, this was in Utah, they went in the, in the state. They uh, The state was worried about dumps. So they got a lot of press because it was already in the press. And now you have these kids telling you there's another dump here may not be huge, but it's there. And they made hay, and the press loved it because the youngsters were involved. You have other examples about that. Now, uh, when they wanted to ban pesticides in New York City, parks, um, it was (laughs) one of the councilmen says the cutest hearing he had was this little, this class of youngsters going to his hearing and standing up and saying, this land is our land. He said, I never, he, uh, but they didn't persuade the council. They, they, they fascinated him and he'd have him back, but they didn't do, they couldn't get it done, but they got done some years later, intergenerationally, you know, Paul, Paula Rogovin. Yeah. Uh, I think it was, it was like six or seven back. years later. Yeah. Yeah. What else did, did did they you can one can point to that they have these assets. We must not. Uh, you know the youngster who was a Native American in Ontario, and she was a water. They called themselves a water. As a matter of fact, the Native tribes they have the idea of intergenerational responsibility. Right. You're supposed to grow up being a leader, and. It's expected of them, and that that tells you the expectation that you have of children. If you have low expectations, they will oblige you. If you have high expectations, they will surprise you. Works all the time, Caleb. Yeah, I think fascinating that fascinating to watch. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I I feel uh, that you know they. The expectations, as you say, the expectations that are put on young people really do have a major determining factor in how they perform. Mm -hmm. Because when you set high expectations, obviously, in a reasonable manner, not in a terrifying manner, like you'll be punished, (laughs) but in a way where... Stop it. Stop it. You know, I mean, distract. Don't you know how to distract the child? Yeah. You know what I, I have? Uh, lately, I got an imagery that, that I really makes me feel good. I take these kids that are on their way to being addicted to these iPhones and, and being pulled into uh, virtual reality and uh, just putting the phone in the house where you're gathered and going out to the garden and digging and putting your hands in the soil. And then I would ask them, how do you feel? Well, there's a worm. And then they'd learn about what worms do to soils. There's an insect. So many ways. The school is... Well, you know this uh, quote by um, I used by um, Mark Twain? From, from Huck Finn. I didn't, let, I didn't let schooling get in the way of my education. Yeah, it was 
So you go to the Latin derivation, educare. And he didn't. He went on to do many things. But the three historic fig- figures, uh, Benjamin Franklin, the ultimate self-education. You know, he used to say, what I've, at the end of a day, uh, what, I, what I have done, what did I want to do, and what have I done? And then he analyzed it. I often wonder, I think I'll, I'll do that. See what the intention was at the beginning of the day and see what you actually did. And what all the distractions that take you away from the important things you had on the list. Yeah, that, that, that sort of self-tracking is very important. Now, we don't, uh, we don't, uh, how shall I put it? We don't um, protect our children very well. In Europe, they, they didn't allow direct marketing to children on television. It was on television when television came out. And they're still more careful than we are, certainly on the privacy issue. We're just getting around to it, maybe. And this man, Zuckerberg, he wants to take him into virtual reality, the metaverse. This is very dangerous. It is very dangerous, Caleb. This is, by the way, it isn't the first time you've had uh, corporate hucksters, you know, junk food. They've turned everybody into a diabetic. Even children are showing up diabetes now. Where do you think that comes from? Fast food, mostly. <laughs> Mark Mark Bittman writes about that. You know his writing? New York Times. Yeah, the, the, the food columnist. The mailman school of public... Yeah, on food. And, uh, and he said something very interesting when he talked. He wrote a column, which I mentioned in the book, uh, about uh, her New Year's resolution. Forget him. He said, you're already, you're already fat and unhealthy. That he actually said this. I don't know what his data is. That it can become part of your DNA and pass it on. Like some people have the alcoholic uh, gene, they used to call well, it. It isn't a good scene. But these children, the reason they can be our hope and why we need them is if we can guide them in a different way, they can be leaders. You don't need all of them. You need less than 1% even. They can really start movements. Uh, Greta did. I mean, we now always say Greta, right? There are other starts that... By the way, the Salt Lake City example, the teacher uh, quit teaching and she wrote a book, Kids and Social Action, and she spent her career going around, the rest of it, going around the country talking about such things. They do have a a wonderful sense for uh, uh, justice. I mean, they they want, uh, and Robert Coles found this to be the true, you know, the psychologist at Harvard, University, who's interviewed thousands of kids, and his conclusion was uh, that children, young children, definitely possess a moral sensibility and increasingly well-muscled notion of right and wrong, and yes, a yearning that justice be done. There are many examples to give us hope. For example, the 11-year-old son of Joe Califano, who was in Lyndon Johnson's cabinet, 
he went on, he said to his father when he was 11, and uh, California was about 90 now, living a good life. <laughs> he said to dad, how long do you think you will learn if you continue to chain smoke? That jolted him right out of smoking, and he, he set up the a center at Columbia for addiction and substance abuse. You know, when you tell all these stories, like I am now, you just get excited. And you feel that maybe we can do something. Now, I don't know how many people will read this. There's been a lot of acclaim. But what I think is, Dimitra Dukas is an anthropologist, a very fine one. And older now, but she her mind is terrific. And um, he uh, he's reading this book. She said, "I have it on my workbench." He's reading this book and thinking of libraries. Libraries can be an answer here, part of an answer, and that they can have sessions <clears throat> like we talked talk in the book about uh, learning and unlearning, historic history myths, uh, about, let's say, remember the Paul Bunyan story? And uh, remember a lot of people (laughs) cut their teeth on that story, like it's good to cut down the trees. And the lumber industry couldn't have been happier. You know how many lumber museums there are? We counted 33. And... uh, but people are now more, they certainly don't teach that anymore in the schools. They did. The schools have to be more alert to what they shouldn't be teaching long before the public. Uh, there is hope when you look at these children. I say we need them and they need us. See what the less than 1%, that's my brother Ralph always says, all you need is less than 1% of the people. <laughs> Yeah, I really like the title. You are your own best teacher. I think it's a it in many ways encapsulates the message of a lot of the the stories you tell in the book. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you're not stymied. You don't have to. Your the your mind could be wide wide open, and lots of you know uh, frame of reference is a very important concept. You can have many different frames of reference depending on what you're involved in. Whether it's uh, going to town, if you go to a town meeting, it's different than reading about a town meeting. Absolutely. They were much, they were much livelier when I was young, younger. I mean, people stood up and said, I remember somebody standing up and saying, reading his mind and, and, uh, and said, that what, the, what the person said before me is not right. This is what's right. And then, uh, Somebody else stood up and said, sit down, you're not talking properly. I mean, you can't talk that way today. Everybody's blistered by moonbeams. <laughs> <laughs> not that you should, but, but it, uh, tempers got hot. I think uh, an issue now, too, is that these meetings don't happen in person as much anymore. I think they're starting to now. So it's a little harder, these sort of town hall meetings, because a lot of them were moved online. Yeah, well, that's the worst thing that happened. People like to be with each other. 
They like movies. They don't want to look at a movie at home just with the family. They'll go to movie theaters and get, get out of this pandemic stuff. They like going to movie theaters with other people. Hear comments going out and very nice. Is there, we talk about. Is there uh, anything else that, you know, that you talk about in the book or anything that you've been thinking about related to education? Uh, well, what, what came up is libraries maybe may, may help here. And uh, what, what uh, Dimitra Dukas is doing is she's taking parts of the book, us learning and unlearning, big talk, small talk, you know, what's big talk, what's small talk, and uh, and uh, making little projects out of them for libraries. You know, they have events. You bring your your patrons in. There'd be children, and you can say what you want, and, um, and their ch- uh, parents and their children, which is a place they normally go together. Not parents, it's some older person who's responsible in the family. That's a good, uh, that, that's good. And th- there are concepts in the book that, that children should uh, start uh, thinking about. You know, you want to <clears throat> know how to be grateful in life. It would help them a lot. And it helps you relate to people in a good way. Remember Kavanaugh Bell? Mm-hmm. He wanted to spread positivity and love after being bullied. I mean, he was seven. And he did. That's an astonishing story. Post had a big feature on him at the time. That's how I learned about him. And uh, he wanted, he, he, and he had been out to the uh, Pine Ridge Reservation with his mother and saw how poor it was. So when he got this idea, he started sending help. Clothes help, food help, and it got to a point where uh, uh, people saw what he was doing, older, you know, the adults, and started uh, giving them food and clothing and blankets and, and all kinds of things that the people in Pine Ridge could use, and they loaded up a, a semi-truck, you know, and took it out there. That's amazing. Yeah, that's there's a lot of remarkable stories like that. Um, yeah, and we need to tell them because uh, you know bad news travels fast. Press doesn't cover the press here doesn't even cover citizen work. I, I mean, that's what do you think is going to save our necks? All kinds of citizen groups that are doing very good work, and they need publicity. The reason the uh, the uh, movements went. Uh, far in the 60s and 70s, early 70s, is because the press covered them. The press covered them, the Congress takes notice. You're right. There's not a lot of coverage of any sort of local actions, mostly, uh, you know, large, bigger, big stories. They haven't, yeah, they don't, they don't. So you notice all these things, and, and they're historic examples. The reason I gave historic examples because at that time, like Benjamin Franklin, his father, they had 17 children, I think. And he couldn't afford to send the father, who's a candle maker, and, uh, 
he couldn't afford to send his kids. So Benjamin went two two years to Boston uh, Latin School, and that's it. The rest of it he had to learn on his own. What a self-educated person. What he did. It's astonishing. You read his autobiography, you get very hopeful. And then, um, because it's more than what he did, it's how he did it. And uh, and there's Frederick Douglass, who, who learned that knowing how to read is your way to freedom, and how he taught himself the discipline. And they were children at that time. They were youngsters. They're not now. They're historic figures. But I, I talked about what they did when they were youngsters. And Helen Keller. And there are others. These um. Uh, you can play games with uh, with these children. The you know the what if section of the book. Mm-hmm. What if? Imagine. What if uh, we can uh, clean up that dump? What it, taking the examples from the area you live in, soaring everywhere you want to go if your imagination takes you. What if, what if, what if? It stimulates you. <clears throat> that tells me something about, uh, it reminds me of a story. We had, we supported in Winstead uh, for about eight years, eight to nine years, Penny Owen, who was an um, educated um, she's an anthropologist focused on education and the theater, and she had theater background so she took school children elementary and some middle but elementary mostly and she took the curriculum that the teacher wanted taught, so, you know social studies they call it and <clears throat> taught them with a pedagogy that was so imaginative but it got the students to move. It got them to create, uh, know how to, if you had this tribe and and this was the, the problem, they were conflicting. If you're this tribe and you're this tribe, and they had to solve their problems. It's all about democracy, really. And um, she'd get on the floor with them and, and help a child that was awkward about things and give them confidence. Then she had uh, uh, little older children. She didn't go below second grade. She started with third, I think. And uh, she, and then she followed these kids, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. And I went to the office one day, opened the door, and she stopped because she had a whole group of children. And they were screaming and jumping and bedlam. I didn't know what was going on, so I just listened around the corner. And she let them go on for five minutes. And then she said, stop. And my goodness, they stopped. And now, she said, we can get to work. Got all your energy out of you. And they did. They settled down and they focused. She said, children need to move. Odd, odd isn't it? Children need to move. <laughs> They're always fidgeting when they're hanging on to the parent in a in a grocery line. Yeah, I certainly was. <laughs> you need to move. Yeah, yeah, you need to move. And uh, and uh, physical ed in schools is, is practically is nothing anymore. Jay Matthews, by the way, uh, wrote an article. You know, he's the education person. I think Times. He wrote an article and he focused on that part. 
So, do you have anything else to ask me? You know, I think I my last question is, you know, what are you, you know, with this book published, if there's anything, not necessarily books, but anything that you're working on, thinking about, anything animating your interests? Beyond the book? Yeah, beyond the book. Well, actually, the book is a, it becomes a, uh, uh, how shall I put it, a teaching mechanism in many ways. Yes, yeah. I'm not going to, uh, yeah, and we will do more with the anthropologist, you know, on learning to learn, or learn by doing, or um, big talk, small talk concepts that are in the book, and uh, you know, and we taught them that you can control, you know, they you can uh, uh, own many things, but you don't control them. Right. And on the on the public, uh, he's still writing, by the way, he's Iowa. And the uh, importance of a questioning mind. And there's so many ways to use this, but it's the libraries that I think uh, we will uh, try to um, to work through. We'll start with our own library. Yeah, it sounds like. See, because they're very well connected with each other. Let's say the libraries in uh, Connecticut is a very strong connection between libraries, loans and things like that, but they can be much more. And put it in front of them and uh, see what what, uh, they can do do with it. Um, And then I need more families to actually use the book. Uh, if uh, for, uh, and these would be families I know and somebody else knows, we need um, to, um, to see how far we can get with uh, using the book, actually, as an example. Then they can become, uh, they have their networks. Yeah, that's just a reminder to the listeners that the book is at inspiringtweens.com. Uh, it's called You Are Your Own Best Teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, Claire, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. It was great to hear from you and hear about the work that you're doing. Uh, and I think that our listeners will find many of the stories that you told very, very interesting. So thank you so much. Okay.